Let's pray and we'll ask God for his help. Father, we do pray that you help us now to understand uh, chapter 10, but also the whole argument of chapters 8 to 10. Please help us to know how we can glorify you, and then please give us the strength that we need to put it into practice in the tough situations and temptations that we face day by day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in chapters 8 to 10, Paul has been dealing with this issue of whether Christians should eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. Back in Corinth, idol temples, they played a central role in society. They were places of religious worship, yes, but they were much more than that. So if you think about even just our church here, we do more than church, don't we? Uh, We don't just meet for for church on Sundays. We meet for um, uh, breakfast sometimes for the 9 o'clock service. We meet for um, morning tea, for supper, for lunch. Uh, Some people have celebrated their birthdays here at church. Uh, one, One couple celebrated their anniversary in the hall here. People have their children's birthdays in the hall or other family occasions Occasionally we've had bush dances here, family fun days, we'll do weddings, we'll do funerals. Uh, There's a lot more to to what we do at church than just church. Well, idol temples in the first century were a bit like that. One commentator puts it this way. People could hold birthday celebrations, festive meals to celebrate a family event such as a coming of age or anniversary or other social occasions under the auspices or patronage of the temple dining facilities. So you can see family life is very much tied up with idol temples. This is where you have your birthdays and so on. Uh, Also, we've seen, as we've seen before, it's very tied up with work life as well. Many jobs involve being part of a guild, like a union, and and the guilds held their meetings in the idol temples, often with a meal, often with meat that had been sacrificed to the temple's idol. So idol temples, it's not just about religion, they're very central to family life, to work life in first century Corinth. And most meat that you can buy in the city of Corinth, certainly the cheapest and best quality meat, it's been offered to an idol. As we've seen over the last couple of weeks, there was a debate in the church in Corinth about whether you should eat meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. Some people were fine with the idea. An idol is nothing. They said, just a block of wood or metal. Meat, it's just meat. Everything belongs to God. Say thanks to God and enjoy it. But other people weren't so sure. For them, eating meat sacrificed to an idol, that is actually idolatry. It's participating in idol worship for them. And so they thought you should not eat. Now, Paul's answer to their question, it's been pretty subtle, hasn't it? A little bit complex. It's taken us these whole three chapters First thing he said, it's not the first thing he said, but the first thing um, theoretically that he said, if you think it's wrong, then for you it is wrong. You must not do it. You must not do something that you believe is sinful. So if you think you shouldn't eat this meat sacrificed to an idol, don't go against your conscience. It is sinful if you eat it. But second, Paul says, it's not sinful in itself to eat meat sacrificed to an idol. An idol is nothing. Food doesn't bring us closer to God. Food doesn't take us away from God. There's nothing objectively wrong, nothing inherently wrong with eating idol meat. And if you know that, if you're clear in your own mind about that, it's fine for you to eat. Except that's not quite the end of the matter. Because knowledge isn't everything. To be pleasing to God, you need to act not just with knowledge, but also with love. And so Paul describes the situation. Do you remember from back in chapter 8 that there are, there are two people? One thinks it's fine to eat meat sacrificed to an idol. 
No problems with it. But the other thinks it is not okay. The one who thinks it's fine goes, buys and eats some idle meat. And that leads the second person to do the same thing. Even though the second person thinks it's wrong, they do it because they're following the example of the first person. In that situation, the second person has sinned. He's done something that he thinks he shouldn't have done. But that's not all. The first person has sinned as well. Not because he ate meat, but because he lovelessly led his brother into sin. So so just knowing you can do something, it's not enough to allow you to do it. You need to love other people. And there are times when loving other people will mean you give it up, you don't eat. Then in chapter 9 last week, we saw Paul went on to focus more on this idea of love, the love aspect of the equation. He said, the most loving thing that we can do for people is to try to win them for Jesus. That's the best way we can love anyone. And if that means not eating meat, because you know, you're eating meat is going to cause someone to sin, if winning someone for Jesus means not eating meat, it is well worth it. In fact, Paul talks about lots of things that he gave up so as to try to share the gospel of Jesus with the Corinthians. That's what it means to love. You know if you have the freedom to do something or not. But even if you know you have that freedom, you then try to use that freedom to help other people trust in Jesus. You don't create obstacles, you try to help them. So there's knowledge, you need to know if you're allowed to eat, and there's love. We want to help people be saved. See where we come so far? Chapters 8 and 9. All right, now, chapter 10. Just before he summarises and moves on to the next point in chapter 11, uh, Paul has one more thing to say. And this time, it relates not so much to the, to the, uh, to the love aspect, but, but it goes back to the knowledge aspect of what Paul's been talking about. So he said knowledge, love, then we focused on love in chapter 9, now we're focusing more on knowledge in chapter 10. You see, those people, those people who think it's fine to eat meat sacrificed to an idol, those people who are strong in their consciences, they need to be careful. They need to be sure that their strong conscience doesn't lead them into sin. Let me try to illustrate for you something of what might have been happening in the Corinthian church. Now, let's think for a moment about eating meat sacrificed to an idol. Okay, situation number one. Is it okay to go to a market, buy a steak that's been sacrificed to an idol, take it home and eat it in private? Is that all right? We've already seen the answer, haven't we? As long as you're convinced it's okay, yes, it is okay. It's not objectively sinful. It doesn't hurt anyone. It's fine. Enjoy your steak. But let's take it further. What if I go to the idol temple? Say I go to a family birthday party at the temple. I go along, sit down in the idol temple, sing happy birthday with my family and eat the meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. That's still all right? What about this? I go to the idol temple for a guild meeting for my job. I go to the, the, to the work meeting and then I go to the idol meal afterwards. Uh, with all my workmates, I don't want to stand out, so I bow down with them to the idol and, uh, and then I eat the meat that's been sacrificed to the idol. Still okay? What about this? I go to the idol temple for a family anniversary celebration. It's my parents' 25th anniversary. Uh, I, I'm that young. Um, <clears throat> probably 50th, a bit closer for my parents. I have a family anniversary celebration. I, I join in the idol service that they have to give thanks for their anniversary. I pray prayers to the idol. I burn incense to the idol. I, I bow down to the idol. I eat some idol meat. And uh, I join in the family dance party with the temple prostitutes at the end. 
Somewhere I reckon I've crossed a line, don't you? Oh, but an idol is nothing, I say. And bowing down doesn't mean anything, it's just exercising my back. does nothing at all. You know, there's nothing there to bow to. And prayers to a statue, they mean nothing at all. There's nothing there, it's just, it's just words to emptiness. And dancing is just dancing, we all love a dance in our family. And meat is just meat. I'm a baptised Christian. I regularly share in the Lord's Supper. Jesus is my powerful Lord, much more powerful than any of my family's idols. I don't need to worry about idols. I don't need to worry about idol temples. I don't need to worry about any of that stuff. Jesus is my powerful Lord and I'm free in Christ to do what I want. That's what I might say. But I'm kidding myself, aren't I? Somewhere I crossed a line. Somewhere I started committing idolatry. And at that point, all this strong conscience stuff is just an excuse. What's really going on is this. I don't want to upset my family. Or I don't want to lose my job. Or I like cavorting with prostitutes. I'm using my so-called strong conscience to excuse my sin. The reality is I've been tempted by family or by work into idolatry. Friends, do you know what? This very situation is happening with people in our church today. This day, this morning, I had a conversation with a lady. She had to go to her mum's funeral. There were 300 people at the funeral. She was the only Christian. She, as the daughter, relevantly the only daughter, there is another daughter, but uh, she, she was the one who was there. She, as the daughter, was expected to do certain homage, obeisance to, to the spirit of her, of her mother. 300 other family members who, if she said, I'm a Christian, I can't do this, would go, well, Christians don't love their family. Not an easy situation, is it? Some other people from our church are overseas at the moment. You know what's happening overseas at the moment, the Hungry Ghost Festival. They don't want to offend anyone. They want to be there with their family. They don't believe ghosts are hungry or that you need to feed them. They believe they're free as Christians, to, so they go along and they participate in all the prayers and the rituals. But really, should they? Is that honestly okay to bow down and pray to and feed hungry ghosts? That's the question these people are wrestling with today. And that's the kind of situation Paul deals with in chapter 10. And he starts off by taking the Corinthians on a bit of a history lesson. He reminds them what happened to Israel way back 1,500 years before the first century, way back to the time of Moses. The first thing he says is that Israel in Moses' time, they had a lot in common with Christians. Paul says the Israelites were baptised. They were baptised through the Red Sea and into the leadership of Moses, just like the Corinthians were baptised through water and into the leadership of Jesus. Paul says the Israelites, they also shared in the Lord's Supper. Through Christ, God fed them with manna and gave them water in the wilderness, just like the Corinthians are sustained through that same Christ as they eat the bread and drink the wine at the Lord's Supper. Have a look with me at the similarity between Christians and Israel in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses, 
in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Israel under Moses were very like Christians. They were God's baptised, Lord-supper-eating people, saved out of slavery by God. For Israel, saved out of slavery to Egypt. For Christians, saved out of slavery to sin. On their way to the promised land. Canaan for Israel, the new heaven and earth for us. Israel are in a similar position to Christians, in between slavery and the promised land. But the fact is this. Almost none of the Israelites made it. They were saved out of Egypt, but they never made it to the promised land. Most of them ended up dead in the desert. Verse 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Paul says to the Corinthians, it's an example for you. You are not in heaven yet. And like with Israel, if you think that you can do whatever you want, if you think you can sin with impunity, if you think you can commit idolatry and God is okay with that, you are in great, great danger. You might never make it. Verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Israel didn't make it to the promised land. And why? Paul reminds the Corinthians of the story. It was sins. Sins like idolatry. Sins like sexual immorality. Sins like provoking God and grumbling against him. Those were sins that left Israel dead in the desert. Falling short of the promised land. Those are the same kinds of sins that can leave Christians falling short of the promised land. The Corinthians must not fall into those same sins. Verse 7. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. It's the golden calf incident. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. Some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. Can you see, sin is not okay for a Christian. Your baptism, your sharing in the Lord's Supper, they're not an excuse for sin. So Paul says, be very careful. Just because you think you stand, just because you know that it's fine for you to do something, it doesn't mean that it is fine for you to do it. Sin is sin, whether you think it's okay or not. Idolatry is idolatry, whether you think it's okay or not. Verse 11, these things happen to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Uh, in context, Paul's addressing the people who think it's fine to eat meat sacrificed to idols, isn't he? Saying, so be very, very careful. In one sense, yeah, it's fine to eat meat sacrificed to an idol. But you, just because you know that you can do something doesn't mean that you can. The fact is idolatry is not acceptable and is a very slippery slope. Idolatry is a sin that kept Israel out of the promised land and idolatry could be your undoing as well. You don't want to end up dead in the desert like they did, so be very careful that you genuinely know that you can do what you are doing. 
But what about my family? One of those Corinthians might ask. My, my 300 non-Christian relatives who were there at my parents' anniversary and I'm supposed to say a prayer to the idol for them and they will all think that I'm not respecting my parents. I, I can't offend them. I, I can't skip my brother's birthday party. What about my job? I will lose my job. if I'm required to participate in the idol service. How, how, can, how can I not do it? Paul says, you're not the first person this has happened to. You must not sin, no matter what the temptation, no matter what your family says, no matter what your job says, you must not sin. And he says that God will help you if you honour him. Verse 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, it also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Paul lays it out for the Corinthians. Idolatry is sin. If you are a Christian, you are part of the very body of Christ, united to Jesus, united to his people as he's visibly demonstrated in the Lord's Supper. And so for Christ's sake, for the sake of his people, you've got to stay well clear of idols. Verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, Flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the same loaf. We are united to Jesus, united to each other. And yes, it may be fine to eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol, but you've got to be so careful. If you are, in fact, committing idolatry as you eat, that is not okay. And and if you're heading down to the idol temple and bowing down to the idols and sharing in the idol feasts and, and, uh, and eating the meat in that context, well, you need to be very, very, very careful. You're treading on thin ice indeed. You're starting to look a lot like Israel when they were worshipping the golden calf. Sure, a golden calf is nothing, but idol worship is a demonic sin. You are uniting yourself to demons when you commit idolatry and that makes God very, very angry. So you reckon you've got a strong conscience? Just make sure you're not trying to be stronger than God. Verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. And and here he's thinking about when they worshipped the golden calf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I then mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You can't have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You can just picture it, can't you? The, the, The Corinthian guy who's at church on a Sunday sharing in the Lord's Supper and then at the idol festival on a Monday with his guild partying away. Uh uh. Jesus won't be shared in that way. Paul goes, back to, oh, Paul goes back then to that, uh, that saying that the Corinthians had. You remember the saying? They, they were trying it out on sexual immorality back in chapter 6. Uh, they were saying, everything is permissible for me. Paul says, not, not idolatry. Idolatry brings no benefit. 
It is destructive. It is bad for you and it's bad for other people. Don't do it. Verse 23. Everything is permissible. Not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible. Not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Do you see the point Paul's making here in this section of chapter 10? Just because you think you can do something, it doesn't mean that you can. There is objectively such a thing as sin. And your ignorance or or knowledge about it makes no difference to its sinfulness. Even if you so-called know that something is not a sin, if it is a sin, it's not okay. Idolatry, for example, it's never okay. Sexual immorality is never okay. Testing God, grumbling against God, they're not okay. Like with Israel, they could leave you dead in the desert. You'll never make it to the promised land. So beware when you think you stand. Beware when you know that it's okay to do something. Be very, very careful. Check your Bible carefully. Make sure about it. We need to flee from sin. So make sure that you do seriously, honestly know that you can do something before you do it. Make sure you're not just making excuses because you're being tempted by family or work or something else to do it. See the point? All right. Our last section of chapter 10, Paul gives a couple of example situations. And these couple of example situations, they're meant to sum up the principles that he's given us. From chapters 8 to 10. So situation number one, uh, you head down to the butcher, you see some meat. Was it sacrificed to an idol? Who cares? Fact is, everything in this world belongs to God. If you think it's wrong, don't do it. But the objective truth is this, it's fine. Go ahead, enjoy your steak. Verse 25. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That's situation number one. But now there's situation number two. So... You and a Christian friend, you get invited to the house of a non-Christian. Now, you think it's fine to eat meat, whether it's been sacrificed to an idol or not. But your Christian friend doesn't agree. They think that it's idolatrous to eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. So you arrive at this unbeliever's house. The host offers you a meal. You think, fantastic, here I am. It's a great opportunity to share the gospel with this host. I will, of course, eat their meal and, uh, and, and, and try to share the gospel with them. So Paul says, that situation, don't ask questions. Brilliant. Dig in. Enjoy. Verse 27. If some unbeliever invites you, and unfortunately don't get this in English because you stands for both singular and plural, the you here is plural. Okay, it's more than one person being invited. So it's you and a Christian friend. So uh, let me do the Jeff Fennick version. If some unbeliever invites yous to a meal and, and, and yous want to go, um, eat whatever is put before yous without raising questions of con- conscience. Okay? Fine to eat. But if your friend says, hey, buddy, you can't eat that meat. It's been offered to an idol. Well, then what do you do? You want to please your host and share the gospel with them, but you don't want to lead your friend into sin. This is, this, this, it will be sinful for them to eat. So what do you do? Well, you don't eat. Not because of the meat, but because of your friend's conscience. You mustn't tempt your friend to do what they think they're not allowed to do. That will be unloving to your brother or sister. Just stick with the veggies. Verse 28. 
But if one says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience's sake, the other man's conscience, I mean, not, not yours. Why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of something I thank God for. Perfectly free to do it, but out of love you don't do it. Paul summarises, and, and as he does, he shows that the principles that he's shown us here in chapters 8 to 10, they apply to everything. This is not just about idol meat. Paul says, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. You need to know that you can do it, that you have that freedom, it's not sin, and you should do it in love to other people. Don't cause harm. Try to help people. Trust Jesus and be saved. That's what Jesus did for us. That's what Paul tries to do. It's what he wants the Corinthians to do as well. Verse 31. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way from not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. All right. Well, it's been a long haul getting through from chapters 8 to chapter 10, and the argument's a little subtle, a little complex in places. So what I've tried to do here, I've, I've drawn you a diagram, a flow diagram. Sorry, I don't know how to do pictures. I don't even know how to do arrows on a computer, so I had to just draw the arrows in. If I'd had Warren here, I would have given you brains for knowledge and hearts for... It's all beyond me, I'm sorry. So you, you can miss Warren with me. Uh, but I've tried to summarise the argument of chapters 8 to 10 into this diagram. Just see if you can follow it along with me. You can see the question there in the middle. Can I eat this meat that's been offered to an idol? That's the question. You can see in um, capital letters the two issues, the knowledge issue and the love issue. See both of those? Okay, so here's the question. Can I eat this meat that's been offered to an idol? First we go to the knowledge question. What do I know? Am I free to eat this meat or is it sinful? Am I allowed to eat it? If the answer is no, I'm not allowed to eat it because it's idolatrous or whatever, I must not eat. But having said that, Back in chapter 8, it's good to educate your conscience. Maybe it's not objectively sinful. Maybe you need to learn a bit more about your Christian freedom. Am I allowed to eat it? If you believe the answer is yes, you can see we're going up and back down another arrow there. If you believe that you are allowed to eat it, well, chapter 10 tells us, check your facts. Check your motivations. Is it really okay or are you just kidding yourself? If it's not okay, you must not eat. But if it is okay, you've checked, you genuinely have freedom on this issue, that's step one completed, now we go to step two, to love. Will it cause harm for me to eat this meat in this circumstance? Especially will it create an obstacle? Will it lead someone away from Christ? If the answer is yes, that it will cause harm, you must not eat. But if the answer is no, you're not going to cause any harm, well then you may eat. And if in fact your eating will further the gospel, even better. See how it all flows? That's the argument, I think. Now, the thing we need to know, the thing we need to realise is this. This actually applies to everything. As Paul says, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Every decision you make, you can run it through this grid. So this applies to religious decisions. Should I join in the Hungry Ghost Festival? Answer, I need to be very clear that I am free to do it. Knowledge. And I need to do what will not cause any obstacles, what, what will best win people for Jesus, love. doesn't answer the question immediately, but that's the grid through which we need to run it. 
But, but it's not just religious decisions either. This applies to non-religious decisions as well. It applies even to little decisions. So, friend, what are you going to do for lunch today? What are you going to do for lunch? What should you eat? Whom should you eat with? You can run it through the grid. Make sure that you're doing something you know isn't sinful. Don't go and steal your lunch. Don't be a glutton at your lunch. But more than that, ask yourself the question, how can I best use this lunchtime to further the gospel? Is this a lunchtime where I need to, where I need to just quietly eat by myself in front of the TV and rest so that I can be a better witness for Jesus at work tomorrow? Or, or is this lunchtime the kind of lunchtime where I should be investing in my family and discipling my kids and, and praying with them and encouraging them? Or, or is this a lunchtime where I should be befriending someone from church and encouraging them? Is this a lunchtime where I should be finding a newcomer and, and, and welcoming them and bringing them to lunch with me? Is this a lunch where I should be going to somebody who's not in our church, who doesn't believe in Jesus, so I can share the gospel with them? Do, do you see it applies to everything, from what you do for lunch to what you do in, for afternoon in the... Everything that we do with our time, with our money, with our energy, it all fits into the grid. It also applies to big decisions. Should I take a job or stay at home? You need to put it through the grid. What job should I do? Where should I live? Should I buy or rent? Should I stay single? Whom should I marry? Where should I send my children to school? It all fits into the grid. You need to avoid sin, know that you're doing the right thing, and you need to do what is most loving, how you can best win people for Jesus. This is good stuff, isn't it? Do you know that Martin Luther and, more modernly, Philip Jensen, they both argue, with many others, that 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 10 are the most important chapters in the whole Bible for thinking through how to live as a Christian. I can see what they're saying, can't you? This applies to everything. Here is how we can respond to the grace of God by living our lives for the glory of God. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave up his rights to win us. We thank you for the Apostle Paul, who was willing to give up his rights so that people may hear the good news about Jesus and put their trust in him and be saved. We pray for ourselves that you would help us, whatever we do, to do it for your glory, to be sure that we have freedom to do it, and to use our freedom to love other people. Father, we are so sorry that this way of thinking is so far away from our way of thinking for the vast majority of what we do in our lives. Please forgive us. Please work in us by your spirit and help us to live our lives in response to your grace for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.